Welcome to episode 74. Hey, it's Davis here. Just a quick thank you to our sponsors for this podcast. Today in business, first impressions are so important. When people call you or your business, the first voice that they hear can make them form an opinion of you immediately. Instant voicemails can help with that. They provide professional, outgoing voicemail greetings in an instant. So simply go to instantvoicemails.com, pick the message that suits you and your business, and download it instantly. You can have a new professional, outgoing message in just minutes. I checked out their website, and this is legit. Beautiful voicemails that you can use for your business. And for our listeners for the Business Journals podcast, you can get an additional 15% off your order by using the promo code GENERALS, G-E-N-E-R-A-L-S, G-E-N-E-R-A-L-S, that's GENERALS. So order now at instantvoicemails.com, that's instantvoicemails.com. Welcome and thank you for joining me here on the Business Generals podcast Excited to have you here on another show. This is where I chat with amazing entrepreneurs five days a week. And remember, if you have not already done so, just click subscribe on your podcast player and that way you will never miss an episode. This is Davis Mutawa here, your host. Super excited to bring you today's feature guest, Mr. Anthony Anorino. Anthony, are you ready to share your story? I'm ready when you are. Awesome. Well, welcome to the Business Generals Podcast. Anthony, ladies and gentlemen, is a global recognized speaker, best-selling author and entrepreneur and a sales leader. He's also the founder and managing partner of two family-owned businesses in the staffing industry. Anthony has written a number of books and I'm very excited to dig into his story. Anthony, why don't you kick us off and just um, give us a little bit about your non-business background? Um, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I spent three years in Los Angeles fronting a hair metal band and working in staffing for a global company. Ended up having a brain surgery that caused me to move back to Columbus, Ohio, where I met my wife, got married, went to college, went to law school, went to Harvard Business School, and had three children and now two dogs and one cat. So that's about as non-business as you can get. (laughs) Amazing. Um, yeah, so that must have been a, an experience having um, pretty pretty critical surgery. I was only 25 at the time. And when you're 25, you, you feel like you're invincible. You feel like nothing bad could happen to you because you're, you're cursed with youth. And so you don't know any better. But I had a grand mal seizure walking up the steps to my apartment in Brentwood, California. And I was mm. taken to UCLA where they said I had a large mass on the front right lobe of my brain and that it was cancer and that they were going to have to remove the whole front half of my brain, which I I thought was a lobotomy, but they assured me it wasn't. They said it was just a lobectomy and I would only be losing one half of my brain. I, I pushed back and asked if there was any op- uh, option. Was there something else it could be? Could we look for something else? And it turns out I had what's called an arterial venous malformation, which is a fancy way of saying a group of arteries and veins that grew into a big knot. And it was pushing Mm. on my brain. So I came back to Columbus, Ohio, and it turns out that the very best guy in the world to remove an AVM is Dr. John Tu at the University of Cincinnati. And I had two surgeries and they removed the AVM, but I had a piece of brain that was damaged and that damaged brain also had to be removed. So... 
part of going to college and all the education after that was an overreaction to having a piece of my brain cut off when I spent most of my time thinking about how much brain did I lose and what am I going to do with the rest of it? And uh, I decided to use the rest of it, what was left. <laughs> well, that's an amazing story and uh, a great way to kick off our conversation. You know, you've, you've done a lot of studies and, um, you know, you've got a big audience online and everywhere. So I want to hear more about that. Um, how long, Anthony, have you been in full-time business for yourself? Um, let's see, 10 years. 10 years. Right. And um, tell us a bit about your core revenue streams at the moment. Well, I'm a complicated guy in this regard. So I still have a a role in the family business, which is staffing. And I'm a partner in another one of the businesses. And then you mentioned two. It's now three. I just started another uh, accounting and finance group under a different umbrella. And that one I'm a a partner Mm -hmm. in. So I've got those. But then I'm also a speaker. And I'm a coach and a consultant and an author. So I have a bunch of different revenue streams. And one of the things that I believe is important for people that live in this day and age, which I call an age of constant, accelerating, disruptive change. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, just hang in there for a minute and it will, because the change just keeps coming faster and it's more disruptive for business people specifically. There's no doubt about it. But uh, you shouldn't give up any revenue streams. I mean, you should have multiple going at one time and you should really think deeply about how do I create additional revenue streams? I think it's really important for people. If you want to take care of your family and you want to make a difference in the world, it's going to take a lot of work. And that that tends to require a lot of revenue so that you can do that work. What would you say is your number one revenue streams amongst all of those? So are they pretty equal? Um, no, probably the, the speaking and uh, coaching consulting is, uh, uh, probably 75%. That's great. I'm interested. My background is accounting and finance and I'm still, um, in that industry at the moment. So you've started an accounting and finance firm or recruiting project. firm. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's, it's in the staffing space for that. Yeah, right. absolutely. Okay. I thought you were doing taxes and stuff. I was like, wait, how can you do that? You know, sales I, guy. I would never listen. I went to law school (laughs) and going into the first semester, the hardest semester of law school, I had a 3.88 grade point average and my grade point average was brought down by federal personal income tax. The only class that I got a C in only because my my hatred and disdain for the U.S. tax code was so great. I literally couldn't physically carry the book around with me. I, I thought, why do I have to even touch this horrible piece of work? Amazing. I know taxation is, is, is crazy. It, it's, uh, it's diabolical. Um, I, I don't specialize in tax. I specialize more in financial reporting, which I think is much better. Yes. But that's good. Well, it's I'm loving this conversation. Um, so talk to me about how your journey started 10 years ago. So you've you've been in the family business, I'm assuming, up up to a point, and then you decided to launch out. So walk us through a little bit about how, how that all transitioned. It was interesting for me. I had a small family business of about $3 million a year. And um, with about six salespeople, I worked us up to about $50 million a year. And I had mm. so many people notice that and start asking me, you know, what, what are you doing? How are you doing this with such a small staff? And how are you so good at winning? Well, what, what we really do is we are a competitive displacement business, which means we take big companies away from big competitors. I mean, that's predominantly what we do and what we're good at. And they wanted help with that. And for a long time, I just said, no, I'm not going to help. Um, I'm not interested. 
But at some point I decided, you know what, and as long as I'm not working with somebody in my space and I'm not teaching competitors, you know, I do have something that I can do to help other people succeed and grow their business. So I started doing some of that work. And mm. December 28th, 2009, I sat down with my wife and I told her that I have something more to offer and I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning instead of 630. And I'm going to spend that time writing down everything that I know and publishing it on a blog and at the time, I was watching Seth Godin and Chris Brogan do that work. And I said, within a year, I'll be keynoting uh, major events at X amount of uh, revenue per speech. And she said, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I love you mm -hmm. and I support you. So I started getting up at five and I really just wow. started doing the work to build um, an awareness for, for what I do and who I am. And October that year, I got my first gig, my first speaking gig. It didn't take me a year. It took me 10 months. And mm. then from that point forward, you know, I realized that because of the Internet, if you're an entrepreneur, your audience is worldwide and they're looking for you. And Google will help them find you, provided that you publish your, your best ideas and, and people can tell how you create value and what you're all about. And, and that was my journey. That's how I did it. I love that. Um, and I heard you share that on one of your videos and I thought, uh, I'm going to dig a bit more into this. So you had this idea to, well, people approached you because of how you had developed your, your business, your own business. And then you, you, be, you worked out that you were going to do it on a blog based on some of the people you were following, like the great Seth Godin. So just walk me through a little bit more in depth about that 10, 10 months. What was happening? It, it's really interesting because you look at what Seth does, and I was watching him, and it dawned on me, he doesn't withhold any idea. He he doesn't say, look, I'm going to give you half an idea, or I'll share sort of generally what I'm talking about. He just gives you his best idea, and he wants you to use it, and he gives it without any expectation of getting anything back. So that's what I did. I decided I'm going to give the best ideas I have as complete as I can, and I'm going to do it with no expectation of getting anything back. And we'll see what happens. And mm. over time, I, I got introduced to a group of people who had a little group where they decided they would share each other's content in, in the goal of expanding their awareness inside the community of, of sales writers. And at the time, there were probably only about, I don't know, six or seven of us. And we started doing that, and it started to amplify our, all of our messages and then that group grew into about now 52 people where we all work together. And you would look at us and say, you guys are all competitors. Why do you work together? But we don't see it that way. And I mean, and if you think about what a speaker does, if you want me, you want me. And if you want Jeb Blunt, you want Jeb Blunt. And we're very, we, we love each other. We're the closest of friends. He's the author of Fanatical Prospecting and Sales EQ or Mike Weinberg or Mark Hunter. These are guys I'm close with. And we hand each other work all the time, especially if somebody's better for it than the other one. But if you want one of us, you want that person. You don't, you don't want mm -hmm. the other person. So there's really not a competition in that regard. But the sharing and the building community and the, the one thing that I would tell you that entrepreneurs struggle with when it comes to sales and marketing, it's the consistency of doing the work every single day. It's getting up at five. Mm -hmm. It's walking in getting a cup of coffee, sitting down at your desk and working for a couple hours on the sales and marketing part of your business, that makes the difference. And I, I know so many entrepreneurs who are operators 
And they're really good, except they don't have any clients because they don't put the sales and marketing first. And so they say, uh, Davis, I'm in an accounting business. No, you're a sales organization that happens to do accounting. And if you get this in the right order, you grow a business. If you get it in the wrong order, then you struggle. Okay. I love this. And I want to go different tangents, but I want to step back and and walk through again. So you've, you've identified this group of people there were six of you and you every morning you're getting up at five in the morning and you're creating your best content your best thought for that day and you're publishing it on your on your new newly started blog is that right true yes and then what happens how does that journey progress (laughs) i mean people start reading it people start commenting emails start coming in and 10 months in a vice president of sales from a big software company calls me and says you know, we really like this idea that you're talking about all the time with dream clients, which are the clients you can do breathtaking, earth shattering work for who are going to value what you do and pay for it. And uh, we want you to come and talk to our team about dream clients. And so that that started to happen about 10 months in. And then from that point, the calls just started coming more frequently and from further away. I mean, another one of my big clients from a, a speaking perspective is a company out of uh Manchester, England, and their CEO was reading me and he believes that sales is still relational and that relationships matter. And if you can't develop relationships, the internet's going to do transactions way better than you do. So you have to decide whether you're going to be super relational or super transactional. And he resonated with that. I spoke to his whole team in Liverpool that year and then went around the world speaking to them in every country uh, before coming back and speaking to them again the second time for their keynote the following year. But the work just started coming uh, about 10 months in. For the first 10 months, though, there was no work. It was just me writing every day, believing that the work would come if I kept doing what I needed to do. That's, that last point, I want to I just amplify that a bit more because one of my questions I, I generally want to ask is, how did you know that you could execute on that initial idea and what kept you going? Because sometimes the statistics are telling you um, there's nobody reading or there's very few people you you know, you might as well just keep doing your, your you know, $50 million revenue company role um, rather than this little blog. I, I, I knew it would work and I knew I had more to share. And the, the web stats were pretty good. I mean, it's, it's definitely when you write your first blog post and you go and you look at the stats and you realize that seven people read it. You're like, seven people? <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> and then, but it grows. And, you know, now... Most days we average about 2,500 views, but Mondays and Tuesdays, for some reason, mm-hmm. when people go back to work, they go to the internet instead of going to work. But they re- there's four, it's 4,000 <laughs> views a day on Mondays. Um, that's the day that they catch up on what I, I've, I've written. So I, I had confidence, I had faith, and I was willing to say I'm playing the longest of long games and I'm going to build a body of work. And it turns out that that's, that's true for most of us. And you you live in Australia, so you may or may not know what snow and ice looks like. Have you ever seen snow or ice? Well, there are parts of Australia that do have that, but no, you're right. I've never physically <laughs> been myself. No. <laughs> I had a feeling. If you're driving a car, I know Australia is so beautiful. If uh, you're driving a car and you start to slide on ice, you literally want to turn your wheel towards the direction that you're going, and you do not want to hit the brake. You just want to turn the wheel and wait until the car starts to slow down naturally. Your instinct, mm. though, is to turn away and hit the gas, which will cause you to spin, and then you'll run into something. 
but it, it's very much like when you're on ice where you can do the right thing, but it takes a little while for it to stick. Even though you're doing the right thing and it's going to work, you have to stay with what you're doing for a long enough time that it actually sticks and you get some traction. And a lot of people give up right before that point where they get the traction because they start to get uh, down. They start to get concerned. They start to worry it's not going to work. And then they start talking to themselves. This isn't working. Mm -hmm. Why isn't anybody reading? Why am I not getting clients? You just have to continually do the work and it will pay off. But it does take longer than you think. And it is scary when it's not working. I know. Um, I love the fact that you have transferred your skills from a generally a corporate role through your, your staffing business and your other entrepreneur ventures into basically becoming a blogger for a season. And then that's then catapulted you into becoming a speaker. So, um, and you followed a model. Uh, somebody else has done it and you follow that model. You know it works and you stayed consistent with it. So that was amazing. How, so you found your first client. How did you find, um, first of all, how did they find you? Did they, just through, through Google, did you ever find out? They, they, they found me through Twitter. Uh, they, Twitter? They came in through a Twitter link and started following the blog. Yeah, Twitter in 2010. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, back then. Um, how did you nominate your price for your first paying um, gig? I had picked a number that I thought was outrageously high. I, in fact, I've shared this number with professional speakers, and uh, it, it ends up being about 10 to 20 times what anyone thinks they get on their first speech. But here's, here's the way that I think about pricing, Davis. Your price is a reflection of the value you create. And I knew that walking in and talking to a thousand people and being able to help them grasp a concept and execute it was worth far, far more than I was going to charge. So when they called, I threw a number out and they immediately said, okay, send us a contract. And then I was like, oh man, that was still too low. I should have gone higher. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it turns out that that's true. And when you can create a tremendous amount of value for other people, then you're allowed to capture a tremendous amount of value. But if you can't mm -hmm. create a lot of value, then you can't capture a lot of value. And that's the way that I tend to think about pricing in everything that we do. You can think that, well, I have to do it this way because this is what the market does. But having a higher price is actually an indication of greater value. And you know that when you walk on a Mercedes lot, you know, they're, they're not interested in competing with uh, a Hyundai or a Kia. They know that if you mm. walk onto their lot, you're looking for something that's better than that. And when people are looking for better, they're willing to pay more. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Um, what was your growth and marketing strategy once you've hit that first paying client? Did you just say, I'm going to do more of the same or did you start to shift your, become more, uh, more prospecting? Um, no, I, I do have somebody who helps me with prospecting for sure, because the funnel for me, people come into the newsletter, uh, they download resources and we do reach out to people. We're still a sales organization, so we still do prospecting. We also still continue. I still blog every day. This last year, I did 200 YouTube videos. Um, I tried to do daily, but I have not yet figured out how to do this when I'm on the road. So as soon as I figure out how to do it when I'm on the road, I'll do one a day in addition to the blog. And we did start using Facebook and YouTube and Google ads, especially for things like book launches where we needed to get attention and we were willing to pay for attention. And that worked really well, too. So we're using just about everything that you can use. Right. 
love I love the philosophy that you've or you obviously believe in to say you're everybody is a sales organization that happens to be doing you know a service or providing a product so dig a little bit more about that and what you have found for your in, during your career and your coaching and your your speaking gigs I think what happens to entrepreneurs is especially when you're starting out you're the CEO you're the COO you're the janitor you're the person that's executing the work um, like I did when I started out. You have all these different roles and they're all important and they all need to be done. And you think to yourself, well, I can do the marketing and the sales later because right now I have this client and I need to execute for that client. And that's exactly the wrong way to think. The right way to think is that I have to serve the business and I have to serve my clients and I have to do what's right for both of these entities at the same time. And even if you have more work than you need, even if you think I'm already buried, I can't take someone else on right now, you still have to get up and do the sales and marketing work because the laws of the universe say that you plant seeds in the springtime and you harvest in the fall. And it's always springtime. You always have to be planting seeds because when that client goes away or that project's over, you can't have nothing in your pipeline. And and that's what happens to many entrepreneurs that cause them to go back into the corporate world is because they're not doing enough sales and marketing. So if you if you think to yourself, the way that you keep a business running is client acquisition. And Peter Drucker, the great management guru, said a business exists to create a client, a customer. That's why a business exists. A business exists to go and find a way to create value for other people and capture those people or those businesses. If you put that first and you say, I'm going to get up every morning and the first hour is going to be sales and marketing, you will have probably more business than you need, which is true for most people if they put sales and marketing first. And you will have consistency of results over time and growth over time. But if you try to say, I'm going to wait until I'm done with this project to go back to sales and marketing activities, then what happens is that the time it takes you to gain interest and acquire a client is so long that you've got these giant dry spells where you don't have revenue coming in and it's stressful and you think, I need a paycheck, I need a steady paycheck. It's your job to create that steady flow of income for yourself and for your business. And if you don't put that first, then ultimately you have to pay the price for it later on. So you really have to think in terms of the primary goal of a business is client acquisition. And that's what's going to work for me. And then I'll go execute for these people. And I'm not saying that it's more important than execution. You still have to execute. But it's the order in which we do things. I know everyone has great intentions and they think, well, I'll do my execution. I'll try to do a little marketing or maybe I'll write a blog post later. But there is no Mm -hmm. later. There's only now. That's the only time you have is now. And it's what are you going to do right now? And if you push it back, you're worn out. You're tired. You've worked all day. You've got kids. You've got other stuff going on. And then that gets passed over. And it's an important part of the business that you can't ignore. What would you say for somebody who's getting started? You know, they've got clients to execute on. They've got their own full-time career that they're still managing. Um, what, what are some of those marketing channels that you think uh, somebody can do daily on a, almost on a non-negotiable piece? Is it like blogging every single day? Would you classify that as marketing or or we're talking actual outreach and prospecting? I I think that's marketing. And I I think client meetings uh, where you're actually on the phone with someone, um, that's sales. And I think you have to be doing both of those every day. You have to make time for a call with a prospect. Um, You need to try to do something that that 
is enough that it gets you the clients that you need. From a marketing perspective, social media channels work great. And they're above the funnel. They're not sales. They are actually marketing. But uh, depending on what your market is, certainly a blog works great. YouTube works great. Facebook is outstanding now. And if you have money to market yourself on Facebook, you can build an audience that looks exactly like the people you're trying to serve. And you can message them with exactly the message they need to hear right now. And you can do a little bit of that uh, for a long time. And I'm, I'm thinking about as an entrepreneur, this is Sunday mm-hmm. for me. And I work Saturday and Sunday like they're every other day of the week. But I'm, I'm somebody who absolutely loves their work. So it's easy for me to find myself in my office because that's where I want to be. And my kids are teenagers, so they don't really care about me right now. Someday they'll come back. But right <laughs> now they like their friends better. <laughs> but the, I am the first national bank of dad, though, and they like that part a lot. They, they, the, the ability to go out and get attention has never been easier and it's never been cheaper. So if you're serving business people, spend time on LinkedIn. If you're serving consumers, spend time building your audience on Facebook. And most of all, the most important thing is to find a way to get people back to your site with content that's relevant to them and answer all their questions there. Don't withhold anything. And then capture their email address because ultimately that's how you're going to start getting in touch with people. And that's how people are going to start reaching back out to you. You mentioned Anthony above the funnel. I've never heard anybody say that. I think I know what you mean. Could you just dig a little bit more into that and then walk us through maybe how your funnel looks like today? Well, above the funnel means I'm not yet sure that I need to do anything different. So what I want is for you to be known before somebody has an an event that causes them to decide they need something. And I want you to have the Mm -hmm. opportunity to shape their thinking about that. So how do I think about, for me, how do I think about sales? How do I think about client acquisition? And in your case, maybe it's how do I think about financial reporting? And I want to be known and I want to be known for the value that I create. And then people enter the funnel when they raise their hand and say, I need to know more about this. Okay, so now they're in some sort of an awareness. I'm not getting this result that I need in this way. Then we start to engage them, and that becomes the funnel. That begins becomes the part where there's an interest, and we understand that they have some source of dissatisfaction or pain or some vision of a future that they don't know how to get to yet. But I think that the, the real work is done above the funnel. That's how do you create awareness? How do you get known? How do people know what you do and what you care about and how you help people? And all that work is what a lot of people, starting with Tom Peters and Fast Company, I think in 1999, called your your personal brand. He called it brand you. And you need to have a brand. Mm-hmm. You have to stand for something where people can look at it and say, that's the person. When you care about this, this is the person. So above the funnel is where all the action is when it comes to branding. And then once it's into the funnel, now we switch into sales skills and not marketing skills anymore. And that's, can I understand your need? Can I help you think about it and help you come up with a vision of what the future is supposed to look like? Can I help you understand your choices and your trade-offs? Can I help you resolve all of your concerns so that you're confident moving forward? And then can I help you build a plan to get there and help you execute that? And how does your funnel look like today? Busy. The thing about marketing and uh, selling consistency over a long period of time you have a lot more funnel activity. You have a lot more coming into the funnel. And you asked mm. me this question where, remember, I'm right on the back of a book launch. 
and you get a lot of attention after a book launch. So there's a lot of people who have read the book, uh, The Lost Art of Closing, and they've recognized what it is, which is really a way to help people change. And it's a walk through the commitments that we need people to make. And so there's a lot of activity around that right now. You know, we we send books to people. We, we The book for us is uh, a lead generation tool. So we send people books mm. and we have conversations about it. Are you looking for more specifically stages of funnel? That's okay. You've actually segued into the next section okay, that sure. I, I was going to jump in straight away. So, But before we do that, I just want to take a, a couple of seconds to pause and just let my listeners know that we are summarizing this conversation with Anthony into a special PDF highlight reel that you can go and download at businessjournals.com forward slash Anthony I. That's businessjournals.com forward slash Anthony I. And um, basically, you don't have to take notes. You can just concentrate and listen and drive or do whatever you're doing and then go over there and download that. And we're going to put that summary together. Now, Anthony has has authored um, two books that I know of, which is The Lost Art of Closing, which is his latest book, the 10 Commitments That Drive Sales. And um, I love the, sec- the other title of, I think, your first book or your earlier book, Anthony, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. What led you into becoming um, a writer and what has that done for you? It's, it's very interesting because I always wanted to be an author. I mean, I, I can go back and look at things that I wrote in my 30s that I wanted to write a book. And uh, I was busy working and didn't write that book. And then I started writing every day. Mm-hmm. And when I started writing every day, people started saying, why don't you write a book? And I'm thinking, why do I need to write a book? I mean, I'm giving you a blog post every single day. You know, in, in yeah. two years in now, there's there's 800 blog posts. Why would I need to write a book when you could just go get this for wow. free? But that people kept asking, write a book. Why don't you write a book? And I had a publisher call and they said, we'd like to help you write a book. And I said, okay, I have a manuscript. So I gave them the manuscript and they said, wow, we hate your manuscript. (laughs) And I said, okay, maybe we won't write this book together. And then I had another publisher reach out (laughs) and uh, I didn't like their value prop at all. It was like, you get to do all the work and you can pay us. And I'm thinking, wait a second, that doesn't sound like a great deal for me. And uh, they Mm. thought it did. So I I eventually decided I would publish the first book myself, and I hired a great editor. We spent six months editing the book, and again, Twitter, I had uh, an acquisitions editor from Portfolio tweet me a direct message and said, you have one of the biggest profiles in sales, and I don't understand why you haven't written a book. And I said, well, I have written a book. And he Mm -hmm. tweeted back, well, I can't find it. And I said, that's because I'm publishing it six weeks from now. And he said, who with? And I said, I don't have a publisher. I'm publishing it myself. And I edited it myself. And he said, can we talk on the phone? So we talked on the phone and he told me how terrible my book was. Um, He said, the title's (laughs) terrible and I don't know what you're doing there. And I said, listen, I have six weeks. Why don't we do this? If uh, he said, if you do really well, we'll look at you for your next book. And I said, why don't we do this? Since you have all these strong opinions before you decide that I've done everything wrong, why don't you read the book and then send me a list of what I should change between now and six weeks. And then I'll change it. It's my book. I can do whatever I want. And uh, maybe we'll talk on the next book. And I sent off the manuscript and I got back a two book deal with a a very, very nice advance uh, in excess of anything that I've ever seen. And uh, that's how we got the book. And they got to name the book. So I named the book 17 Elements. And it was based on the periodic table of elements, and each 
of the 17 elements in the book, things like discipline and resourcefulness and closing, um, they hated the title. So they came up with the only sales guide you'll ever need, which is kind of an unfortunate title when you have another sales book coming out right behind it. So that's the only <laughs> other sales guide you'll ever need. That's how that started. And I decided to write because so many people asked for the book. And then from mm. from there, uh, it's now turned into a relationship where I'm probably going to do, you know, uh, I'm certainly working on book three with portfolio right now, but we're talking about a much, much longer path of, you know, seven mm. or eight more books. So before I ask on the impact of the books on your career and as a speaker and as a coach, um, that first manuscript, did you kind of convert your blog posts into the book or was it completely fresh writing? It was ideas from the blog post that was fresh writing. Mm. What they hated, Interesting. they actually wanted to go back and just take blog posts and turn it into a book. And I refused that offer. I didn't think that's what a book was, was just a collection of blog posts. Although someday, you know, I've got two books from Seth sitting next to me that both weigh something like 16 pounds. They're four color glossy pages that are just all his blog posts from 2006 forward. And someday we may do something uh -huh. like that. But I, I took the book and I took the ideas and I rewrote them because I wasn't writing a blog. I was writing something different. And they hated, the, the first publisher hated that I put caring in a sales book. And they, they wanted to understand why does that have anything to do with sales? And why is half of the book about resourcefulness and initiative and all these things? Why don't you just write a book about just closing or just prospecting? And the yeah. reason that I wrote that book first is because who you are matters more than what you do. First, you have to be mm -hmm. somebody worth doing business with. And the first half of the book is how do you become somebody worth doing business with? And then what skills do you need to actually sell? And I felt like if I gave anybody anything else first and we missed this piece, then there are going to be people who can't execute it because they really haven't done the work to be somebody worth buying from. And if you want to make sales easy, be somebody that people want to work with. I mean, that that's the first thing. If you want to make it easy, tips and tactics and tricks and processes and methodologies are all useless if you're not somebody that people want on their team. Very good. Very interesting. Yes, yeah, so it's about mindset at the beginning and then, you know, the execution of the, the tactical side of things. Um, what has that profile done or what has the book done for your profile and your outreach? It's, it's helped tremendously. There's no doubt about it. And it's also been helped by, you know, my peer group who helped share the book. And that, that's helped grow me as a speaker for sure. And there's just a, generally mm -hmm. a lot more awareness. Okay. I want to just take a moment to just talk about your staffing business. Could you just um, help me understand what do you do there and um, what were the key things that took it from three mil to 50 mil in revenue? I'm assuming that was the business you were referencing at the beginning of the show. Yeah. Um, that business is a what we would call a retail staffing firm. So it's light industrial, clerical, some accounting, some scientific, just very, very general. And mm. what, what I did, we, we grew nicely, but what I did to grow it faster and to, to scale it up, I, I recognized that you can spend a lot of time selling to small accounts and they take just as much time to win as a large account in a lot of cases. And they take just as much time to serve as a large uh, account. And it didn't make sense to me to dedicate the small number of resources I had to accounts that even if I won all of their business wouldn't wouldn't make a dent in what we were doing. 
So I focused on what I call anchor accounts, which are accounts that are big enough that you can build an office around two or three accounts. And we started to compete very early on for these kinds of accounts, but I systematized the the targeting and the acquisition of those accounts with the intention of we're, we're going to take big accounts, we're going to serve big accounts, way outsized for, for somebody like us, companies like Procter & Gamble and mm. uh, the logistics firm for Walmart and Coca-Cola and things like that. So these big, big names with lots yeah. of spend. And then we, yeah. we also decided that we were going to pursue them over time, uh, come what may. Again, and this is sort of the persistence thing uh, that I did with the blog. But we, we persisted, and th- this is still what that business does. And it, it's a persistence against winning the right clients where you can create tremendous value and you build the systems around creating value. So it was really, really, I'm going to tell you, it's it's two things. It's focus and it's discipline. And anytime mm-hmm. you take your your time, your energy, and your resources, and you put it against any obstacle, eventually the obstacle yields. Eventually. But you just have to keep chipping away at it until it breaks. And, and then it turns out that you can have what you want, but you do have to be willing to hang in there. This is gold. You know, anytime you lean against that obstacle with the, over a long enough period of time, it will yield. I love that. I love that. Um, when was... Would you say the biggest breakthrough moment came for you? And you can take this in ever which way you want, whether doing the staffing business or doing your 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 newer sort of speaking and coaching business. I'm, I think I'm still waiting for that event, Davis. I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. still waiting for the biggest breakthrough moment. And it, and it, it's interesting because somebody asked me this question not too long ago, and uh, I had a, a you know the book deal. Is the book deal this? I mean, is that it? Have you made it? And uh, I had a buddy who said, you know, you can stop writing a blog post every day. No, I have the books. The book's (laughs) not it. Or when I got Success Magazine, I was contributing editor there and got cover stories for for them. You know, and you think that there's this one big breakthrough moment, but it Mm. really it it doesn't work that way. So even though you you won a giant account and and you, you now feel like, okay, so now I've won this giant account. What happens to those of us who are entrepreneurial and to get into that kind of thinking? What happens is all that does is give you a different vantage point. And I'll I'll try to share this with you in a way that I tend to think about it. From the bottom of a mountain, you know, all I can see are trees in front of me. But if I climb up a little bit higher, I can see further. And then if I climb up a little bit higher, my vantage point changes again. And all of these little Mm -hmm. things what they really do is they just change your vantage point. So you're a little bit more successful. Now you can see a little bit further and you can see what you're capable of and you can see what's still available to you. And it turns out that the whole thing is just the climb. The whole thing is just the climb. And no matter how well you're doing, all you're doing is increasing the vantage point and that you can see you can be more, you can do more, you can have more, and you can contribute more. And and that's really what happens. So I've stopped waiting for the breakthrough moment, although I hope I have one someday. But all of them for me, I'm happy that these things happen. I'm thrilled. Uh, I, I don't pretend that they're not important. But I don't think that there's any one thing where you say, okay, that's it. That was the breakthrough. Because there's still many, many more breakthroughs to come. And you have to appreciate that and take advantage of it and, and not overlook it. But you also have to know that whatever it is and whatever it feels like in that moment, there's still much more in front of you. Yeah, no, I love that. And and you, you're right, you know, the biggest breakthrough 
is yet to come because everything that you've achieved so far, you probably be able to achieve much more than that. So I love your answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're going through a book launch, and uh, I'm going to spend a few moments just to talk about your key message in that in that book that you've just released, the the lost art of um, of closing. But what does your day look like during a book launch? <laughs> a book launch is uh, well. There's two two painful things for me in writing books. I love the writing process, but I don't love the editing process. And then Mm. I love the launch process, but I don't love what happens after that. And then after that, you start getting hundreds and hundreds of emails. You start getting interview requests. You start getting podcast requests. And it Mm. just feels like your normal day is spiraling out of control because you're trying to find ways to put people onto your calendar when your calendar is already packed. And so that, that ends up being really, really tough. But my day-to-day uh, work, I get up really early. I get up at 4.30 and I end up working wow. until about uh, 8.30 and go to bed at 9.30. And I tend to work through the weekend. So we're recording this on a weekend specifically because it's the easiest time for me to get uh, space mm. on the calendar. Cause not a lot of people want to talk to me on weekend mornings. And if they do, it works out really well for both of us. So it's a lot of podcasts. It's a lot of writing. You know, the publisher will send a note and say, investors, business daily newspaper wants you to write for this. And they have, you know, if you can do it in 48 hours, we can have it on this date. And so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. So a lot, lot of pressure, but I think that comes back to what you're saying about focus and discipline and just persevering through it, knowing that it will it will get you to where you want to get to, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have to do the work. It, again, we're back to sales and marketing. If you write a book and you're not willing to do the sales and marketing work, you're not going to do well with a book. I mean, you have to be really, mm. really as invested in that part of it as you are in the writing. You, you shared a story at the beginning of the show. Well, before we started recording, can you just reshare that? What's What are some of the, the stories that you're getting and um, the... the the reception that the book is receiving. Um, you, you shared a, a nice story that I heard just before. It's been a really interesting book. And the, the thing with this book, it's called The Lost Art of Closing. Every closing book, um, with the exception of James Muir's The Perfect Close, before mine, have all had a list of 110 closes. They'll have the puppy dog close, the alternative to choice close, the doorknob close. I don't even know what that one means. Uh, and they, they have all these different names and all these different tactics and tie downs. And this is so first people think that it's that kind of book. Oh, it's going to be a book of 100 closes. And it's not. It's a book of 10 commitments that you have to gain. The commitment for time, the commitment to explore change, the commitment to change, the commitment to collaborate on the solution, to build consensus, to invest, to review, to resolve concerns. So there's these all these commitments that we have to gain. And what I've noticed about sales is that it's gone nonlinear. So we tend to think that the buying process and the sales process is linear because that's the way we, we map it out when we when we look at uh, slide decks and PDFs and all these things. But it's not linear. We can go back and forth between conversations about collaboration and then conversations about investment mm-hmm. and then bring in consensus, then go back and do more discovery work. So it's gone uh, completely nonlinear. And we need a way to think about that. And this book came from the work of Neil Rackham in some ways, who said that in his research, great salespeople always got an advance. They always got the next commitment, even though they didn't close for the business on that call. They got a commitment to do something together next. The reception has been really good. So people are now rethinking their process. 
they're rethinking the conversations that they're having and they're recognizing, wait, the reason that we lost is because we didn't collaborate and we literally gave the client something they could easily say no to instead of customizing it and tailoring it for them in such a way that they would have to say yes, because it would be so perfect. And uh, there's, a, there's just so many of these stories coming in where people recognize we skip three of these. We never do them. And we try to get to the mm -hmm. end as fast as we can. And then all human relationships, fast is slow and slow is fast. And if you go at a pace where you can have people come with you and you're not way out ahead of them, things work out really well. And where we get disconnected is either we get in front of the buyer or the buyer gets in front of us meaning that they're deeper into their process than we are. We're deeper into ours than they are. And once we're disconnected like that, somebody has to be smart enough to say, wait, we're missing these. We need to go back and realign. So the, the response has mm -hmm. been overwhelming. I think we have uh, 41 five-star reviews and all kinds of comments about how the book has changed people's thinking about what they're doing and producing better results. I'm getting them every day. Once I knew I needed to get <laughs> consensus and now I know how to ask and this is working for me. So it's really good. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. Um, if somebody's just listening to this and um, they're not much into reading or, or, or whatever, but what can you share now that you think out of those 10 commitments, is there, is there one that can really move the needle for somebody who's in that sales position? I, I, I would start with the first one because I think that the first commitment is the toughest one for us to get now, and that's the commitment for time. And, and time is the single finite non-renewable resource all of us have. I mean, you have so yeah. much, you don't even know how much it is, but you're not getting any more. So you have to protect that. And I think that, you know, what I would recommend is you, you need an approach where you can say something like, uh, Davis, listen, I want to ask you for a 20-minute meeting where I can share with you the four trends that are going to impact your business over the next 18 to 24 months. And I'm going to share with you some of the questions that you and your management team are going to be challenged to answer. And even if there's not a, a next step for us together, I'll leave you with this deck and I'll leave you with these insights and you can challenge your team to think about them. And if it makes sense, I'll share some of the things that we see other people doing that might help you. What do you look like on Thursday for 20 minutes? And it will be 20 minutes and I'll give you this, this deck and we'll talk about a few things together and then you'll know me. And if you need anything, I'd love to be top of mind. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is the first chapter of the book. I'm trying to trade value. We're asking somebody to give mm -hmm. us time, which means what do I have to give them in return? If I come in and say, yeah, I'd like to understand the pain you're having. Great. I've had 100 salespeople try to do the same thing. But if I say I've got mm -hmm. insights and ideas and I've got ideas about the challenges that you're going to be facing over the next 18 to 24 months, and I've got questions your, your team's going to need to answer with you, that's something I'd trade 20 minutes for. So you have to have something that helps you understand that you're trading value and helps the client understand that there's a recognition this is worth my time you know ultimately when you sit down and start sharing those kind of ideas with prospective clients they have questions they want to know more and you end up explaining the case for change and that's the most important starting point for the relationship they have we have with new clients is why change i i, I think Anthony, that's a big it, shift doesn't for that people. assume Right. Sorry to cut you, but aren't you assuming a pain point that maybe the client may not have? I'm creating the pain point that they don't have. I'm not trying to address an existing pain point. I'm trying to create a new one. Mm. And it, this is a Very, massive change in the way that sales, you know, the, the status quo is already won. It's deeply entrenched. They know what they know. 
and I continually uh, tease sales audiences with this, Davis, but you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. Do you know what they are? No. Trust and advice. That's it. So you just <laughs> it's a two-part recipe, very simple, uh, but not easy. It's the advice part. Mm-hmm. I have to know something that you don't know. I have to have ideas that you don't already have. I have to have a view of your problems that you haven't yet recognized. I have to have ideas about a future that you can get to that you can't yet see. This is the challenge for all of us in client acquisition and sales is developing the business acumen. Because if you're going to be a trusted advisor, that means you know something that your client doesn't know. And they know their business better than than you do, for sure. They work in that business. But they don't have to know their industry and your industry and the intersection of those with the general economy and the trends in a in a, a world of constant accelerating disruptive change. You can have ideas about that that help them. And when you develop that line of thinking, that's what makes you a trusted advisor. And and then I'm assuming you have to underpin this with the right branding because in today's world, everybody's just going to look up to see whether you're the right person to be providing this sort of information. Is that right? That's right. Very good. Hey, I've loved this conversation. We have come to the top of the hour, and um, I know somebody has received um, something that is going to help them go forward and challenge themselves in their business from what we have talked about today. Where is the best place for people to find your books, Anthony? Amazon.com is the best place for the books right now. Okay, fantastic. And what's the best way for people to connect with you? TheSalesBlog.com. That's the main hub for my business. And there's every social link available on that site. So you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever it makes sense for us to connect. Fantastic. Well, Anthony, I appreciate you for coming on the show and for sharing your wisdom. I've got one final question for you. Do you think about legacy when all is said and done? And what legacy would you like to leave and be remembered for? I, uh, I think about legacy all the time. And I hope that the first part of that is that I created good grown-up adults out of my children that go out and contribute and make a difference. But ultimately, what I think all of us are here for is to help others. And so I hope I'm known for helping other people transform and produce better results in their life um, than they would have otherwise. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was Mr. Anthony Anarino. Um, you can find all the show notes at businessgenerals.com forward slash Anthony I. And we have summarized a PDF highlight reel for you to download um, to connect with Anthony, thesalesblog.com. Anthony, thank you so much for being on the Business Generals podcast today, for sharing your story with us. I loved it. Um, that was absolutely amazing. You are a true business general. Thanks so much for having me, Davis. A message from our sponsors, instantvoicemails.com. Today in business, first impressions are so important. When people call you or your business, the first voice that they hear can make them form an opinion about you immediately. And instant voicemails can help with that. They provide professional, outgoing voicemail greetings in an instant. So simply go to instantvoicemails.com. That's instantvoicemails.com and pick the message that suits you and your business and download it instantly. You can have a new professional outgoing message in just minutes. And for the listeners of the Business Generals podcast, you can get an additional 15% off your order by using the promo code GENERALS, G-E-N-E-R-A-L-S, GENERALS. Order now at instantvoicemails.com. That's instantvoicemails.com. Thanks, guys.